0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us here today on KTRL 90.5 FM. We stream online at this time as well at tarletonradio.com. And as always, if you would like to listen to this show or previous shows after they air, you can check us out on SoundCloud or download where you get your podcast. We also post related articles and information on the show each week on Facebook, that's On Politics with Eric Morrow. Uh, This week we are pleased to have with us Dr. Christian Van Gorder, an Associate Professor of Religion at Baylor University, uh, to focus on the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians, of course, which has flared up in recent weeks, and always presents challenges in terms of understanding the background uh, to this conflict, uh, how these things a start, especially after we've had a significant period of time here without uh, uh, this kind of conflict. And so we want to welcome him to the show. Dr. Van Gorder has his Ph.D. in Islam and Christianity from Queen's University of Belfast, Ireland, and his M.A. in World Religions from Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, he's recently published the Jews and Christians Together, An Invitation to Mutual Respect, and his book prior to that, Islam, Peace, and Social Justice, uh, so we're glad to have him on the show. He is not only uh, a professor and an academic researcher in these areas, but he's traveled in many parts of the world and seen uh, some of these challenges firsthand and, and reflected on them, taught about them, and spoken about them in, in many different contexts. So, Dr. Van Gorder, we are glad to have you with us today on politics.
1: Nice to be with you, Eric.
0: So I just wanted to, to get started first, after we've had such a significant time, I think it's it's been seven years since we've had this level of conflict, and 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 even longer than that since it's been uh, more of considered an uprising uh, by the Palestinians. Uh, what what has has led up to this? What has fed into this kind of renewed conflict? Because I know there's a lot of people out there. Uh, comparing it with presidential administrations and saying, oh, well, it's transitioned from one to the other. This has a long history, which I know we don't have time to go into, but but there are a lot of issues here and a lot of complexity. And so I'd really like to hear your insights on some of the, the more recent challenges that that continue to result in conflict like this.
1: Sure. So uh, you are correct. Absolutely. Uh, it's a labyrinth, uh uh, when you're talking about the history of this situation, you can go back to the Bronze Age, thirty-five hundred years ago, where there's conflict at this uh, Afro-Asiatic land bridge. Empires fighting over this region, going to the Iron Age, going to the times of the Bible. So you're absolutely right. The historical context is profoundly um, multivalent. But uh, you're right too. Um, there was uh, fourteen years ago was. Uh, it, or in the last 14, 14 years, there have been four major conflicts between uh, Gaza uh, and uh, and Israel. So the last major one was seven years ago, as you say, uh, and there were three others before that uh, beginning in 2007. So this one uh, was um, perpetrated by a series of events uh, most recently in April when uh, a the Temple Mount, uh, the call to prayer speaker phone was uh, disassembled by uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, because they were having a program uh, with notable Israeli speakers at the Wailing Wall and they didn't want that interrupted. They had tried to go through uh, protocol and procedure to have that removed. Uh, Israel, of course, says that they did everything they could to avoid a conflict. Uh, Palestinian uh, perspectives say they provoked and did, you know, everything was unnecessary about it. And then uh, there were also problems in local neighborhoods, specifically in East Jerusalem, uh, where, again, you have two narratives, uh, Jewish perspectives that uh, the neighborhoods were, uh, Jewish families were being displaced, Palestinian perspectives, their Palestinian families were being displaced. Uh, all of the, those two incidents led to uh, the launch of missile strikes from Gaza into Israel, um, and we're in day 10 uh, now, and in those last 10 days, there have been over 3,700 missile strikes, according to um, Israel, uh, into, uh, Ga- into pa- Israel. They have the iron uh, defense system uh, that has stops about 90% of those, Um, That system is uh, pretty advanced technology, paid for and supported and funded by the United States, uh, the Iron Dome. And then uh, uh, Israel has shot in uh, 1,500 at least um, missiles. And it's really hard to calibrate these numbers because you're relying on official sources. And that doesn't include things like uh, airstrikes, different kinds of strikes. So it's a very multivalent situation that began in April
0: when we, we look at this current conflict in the the long history of this and and the the challenges that it has presented both to Palestinians and to, to Israelis uh, is, are there are there new aspects to this uh, compared to uh, issues of you know property and uh, you know, land ownership going way back to occupation to uh, you know pressures on both sides to try to assert their identity or or presence you know in terms of the the political and economic goals that they have. Uh, I didn't know if you if, if this falls in line with what we've seen in previous years or if there are any new facets to this that that make this more uh, either challenging or, or present new uh, elements to it that are, that are going to make a, a, a significant challenge going forward?
1: Well, there are, uh, absolutely. Uh, so the four incidents that have happened in the last 14 years, uh, they were fairly re- uh, consistent with what's happening now, with one major exception, and that is that local communities in places like Ashdod and Lod, uh, Jews and uh, Palestinians have been fighting. Uh, bakery shops, coffee shops run by Palestinians uh, are have been attacked by uh, Jewish citizens and uh, Jewish shops have been attacked in Palestinian-majority neighborhoods. So that's very unique. Uh, these situations have always been uh, really seen as political confrontations uh, between major uh, or a country and a, a political party. Hamas, a terrorist organization, according to the United States and uh, some other uh, views, since 2007. Uh, the Palestinian situation has to be understood, and it is complicated. There are actually Palestinians in Israel. There's about 2 million of them who are citizens. There's a, a, between 100,000 and 600,000 who travel in and out from the Palestinian territories who are not citizens, but some of those folks are resident, even though they're supposed to come in and out at night. And then you have the Gaza Strip, which is bordered by um, Egypt and has been part of uh is, is, is not part of the, the 1993 accord which set up the Palestinian uh, Authority on the West Bank. So you have, you have Palestinians under Hamas since 2007, you have Palestinians in Israel, and you have Palestinians in the Palestinian Authority, over 5 million of them in that space. So it's a, you can't speak about Palestinians generally. We're really specifically—the Gaza Strip is an entirely different situation— than what's happening in the Palestinian Authority. And, and actually, the proof of that is that this is not happening in the Palestinian Authority and hasn't happened on the West Bank. It's happening in Gaza and has happened these four times. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So, But the major difference is the, the civil unrest at the grassroots level, the potential for this be going into the Palestinian Authority onto the West Bank. So that's a serious possible uh, addition. And of course, it's easy to lay blame. There've been um, uh, U.S. efforts now for since the Oslo Accords, uh, since really even Camp David, but certainly since nineteen ninety three, there've been uh, clear mandates. United States has worked for on the path; they've worked to a two state solution. That two state solution is now under dire stress, and most Israelis, most Palestinians, do not think it's feasible. Uh, the political left, the extreme left, and the extreme right, are controlling the situation in Israel, and that's that's new. That wasn't the case. There was a center left, center right coalition dealing with it. But of course, with ever since the Oslo Accords, that extreme left and extreme right have grown. Yitz, Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated in '95, so you see uh, progress toward an extreme right, and now the present government in Israel is is really being run by the extreme right although the extreme left and extreme right are allied in the action because everyone wants survival um uh, but it it's a it's a very new situation and it doesn't bode well for any kind of future it's definitely strengthening Hamas's hand definitely
0: well, that that challenge in, internally and in, in your political challenge you said of the extreme right and extreme left and and of course the the chance that this could spread not only to other areas, the West Bank and so forth, then I guess the the, the concern about it spreading beyond the borders of, of, of Israel and Pal, the Palestinian uh, territories, is that, uh, is that still the reason that there's a lot of international focus on this? Uh, I mean, I know we've had, uh, in the recent past, we've had um, uh, several uh, predominantly Muslim nations that have... Uh, engaged in recognition of Israel. We've had a few changes on that front, but I'm wondering if that aspect of it in terms of international attention uh, is still a very major concern, and thus why not only the U.S., which has, has long been engaged in the region, but other, other countries as well are, are concerned about what is happening now.
1: Yeah, you're referring to what uh, the Trump administration called the path to peace and prosperity, uh, which was uh, an initiative launched by that administration, uh, going against the previous all the administrations since Camp David, because uh, since Camp David there was there are basic precedents or basic understandings that a two-state solution had to be negotiated between Palestine, the Palestinian Authority. Palestinians and Israelis, uh, the path to peace and prosperity, the Trump administration initiative, completely bypassed the Palestinians. Uh, so the, uh, the recognition of Israel as a nation by Kuwait, Morocco, United Arab Emirates, I believe a few other uh, nations, uh, that was politically advantageous. It, it recognized something, but it, it didn't do anything to help this problem it actually exacerbated the problem because Palestinians were not included in fact the opposite they were seen as uh, irrelevant uh, which evidently they don't agree with so uh, and also of course the other problem with the the emboldening of the extreme right the unbridled support of settlements and the uh, uh that's been strongly supported uh in the media from the and the american right the uh the Trump administration, which, which broke really with the Bush and, and Reagan and previous Republican administrations, So the previous Republican administrations took a much more cautious, uh there was not as much difference between democratic and Republican, uh, efforts in the United States until recently this, uh, so there are fundamental new problems, uh, fundamental new challenges, and ultimately Hamas is being strengthened by this effort. Uh, and, uh, Israel really has run a tactic without a strategy. They're actually, in the long run, they may actually be weakening their own case in the international media. And of course, international media, that's a um, a, a snake uh, pit as well because there's all kinds of biased reporting, sensational reporting, this focus and fixation on children, which is true and it's tragic. There've been over 250 deaths in Palestine, over 60 or 70 of them are children. Uh, those are horrible facts, but the fact is that that's not happening again in the Palestinian Authority. You have these kinds of tragedies happening in Gaza. Hamas is, uh, benefits and, and sees a certain advantage when these kinds of atrocities happen to their own people. They They don't go into these situations expecting to win they go into these ex- situations expecting to have horrific losses, uh, and that's a calculated effort on their part to gain larger objectives. Israel is participating in that, which is to their uh, discredit. So both both groups are right now committing war crimes, both Israel and the Palestinian Authority. That may not be popular, but that's according war crimes as defined by the United Nations: uh, attacks on civil civilians uh, and the Geneva. Convention these kind of basic fundamental criteria.
0: When when people look at this uh, from the other side of the world and and uh, I think a lot of times the the religious identities come to the forefront uh, and and of course a lot of this is very political, uh, very very complex as we're seeing. But there is a, a religious aspect to this, maybe not as in the way that we understand it here, because we. We tend to kind of s- separate those those things at, at times uh, in our country and our identity, or to view these conflicts, especially in that part of the world, uh, in religious terms. I mean, we it, what what started this with the Temple Mount and with uh, going into the, the mosque and and so on. All of that has that those religious elements to it. But I was wondering if you could help us give a, a little bit of uh, understanding of how. Uh, of the religious component to this, uh, because, uh, a lot of politics, as we said, you know, in terms of, 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 positioning, uh, locally in terms of power, but also on the world scene, but, but, uh, religious identity, um, religious symbolism, there, there's so much of that wrapped into this as well. Uh, can you offer a little bit and just in trying to understand, helping us understand the, that aspect of this?
1: Right, there are several religious factors, and of course, these factors have been brought to everyone's attention since um, 9-11, raising significant questions as to whether um, religious forces help or contribute to violence. Uh, Both uh, of the major religions involved here, both Israel and Judaism uh, take on, I mean, Islam and Judaism, they take on a very different flavor when they're in the majority and when they're in the minority, so that's that's an important factor. Um, and there are other uh, religious factors, such as uh, um, the in the conflict, this sanctity of holy sites, which you mentioned. Uh, the importance for Israel of, of a narrative of that twenty percent on the extreme right, who say this is, you know, God ordained. The uh, twenty percent of Jews on the extreme left that don't have that in and, and the middle, 60% are really just about survival and providing a safe haven for the Jewish people after two millennia of persecution. But there is that 20% that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is uh, fanning the flames of that has never had much authority in the larger political debate, although they've always been there, that this is a God's or God-ordained country and you can't concede even a, a meter of the land to to uh, the Palestinians. Of course, the Palestinians have the same narrative that this is their land given to them by God. You also have apocalyptic factors. Uh, both the religions believe in a, um, significant claims of a apocalypse that will be brought on by conflict and, and war. So there's that kind of self-fulfilling uh, religious dimension as it relates to apocalyptic narratives, um, and but fundamentally, can can these two religions be brokers for peace? Um, can they be a resource to end conflict? Uh, in actual fact, right now, both religions are fanning the flames of the conflict and saying that their religions are justifying and rationalizing those uh, those atrocities.
0: On the I guess the engagement. We've talked a little bit about the United States and and its uh, it, its role, but uh, when you look at this this current crisis and and how uh, the U.S. has played a role in the past in trying to bring sides together, uh, but also in in ways to aggravating uh, the situation and, and and just the ongoing challenges of a solution. What 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 do you see are the the Things we can take away from that in the in the past, and kind of look at this now going forward. Uh, uh, it, it's as you said, we've we've kind of vacillated uh, in different places based on presidential administrations and, and and perspectives on this. We there's the world community that that looks at this and try and some have engaged and others have not. But uh, it, it is an ongoing crisis that uh, where we see people suffering and and significant challenges in. And resolving and, and hoping for peace in that part of the world does the the. US have a role to play uh, in this in trying to uh, help uh, find some resolution in some way?
1: Oh absolutely uh, the United States has always played a role uh, both as a as a positively and negatively since the inception of the State of Israel with the United Nations mandate of 1947 that went into effect in 1948. So yes, absolutely, the United States ha- has a role; has always played a role. Uh, the problem now is uh, with uh, the last um, uh, period of time, um, the United States has we has li- lost its a lot of its uh, leverage and authority uh, in Israel. Um, you can you can blame a lot of people for that. Uh, you can blame uh, Obama's discussion about. Uh, the focus on Asia and uh, the red line of Syria, which was never enacted. You can blame the, the Trump administration. So both of the Obama and Trump administrations have seen a decline of influence in uh, an ability to be an honest broker with Israel and uh, the Palestinians. Uh, so yes, the the long-term solutions and the short-term solutions are different. I think right now, what well, we need to focus on are short-term solutions. I think within the next few days or imminently there, and maybe by the time this airs, there will already be some kind of ceasefire agreement. Uh, I think that's imminent. I think that's in everyone's interest. Uh, that's certainly uh, Hamas and Israel have both proved their point. So I think we'll go back to some kind of status quo um, where everyone will restock and refuel and get ready for the next similar kind of event in four or five years to build their brand and build their bases of support. So that's what this is about. And so in the short term, there has to be peace. There has to be humanitarian efforts. Uh, there has to be a recognition of the rectifying fundamental problems from the 1993 Oslo Accords, which uh, there is a is a pathway for that. Inside of Israel, there are voices for ways to progress that situation where that doesn't become a tinderbox. So uh that hasn't happened yet. That's to the credit of, of Israel as well as the international community, but that all, that's under risk now. So we have to give attention to the economic and practical needs of the Palestinian state, the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank. And then on the East Bank, uh, we need continued help from Egypt. Uh, there has to be a humanitarian or human rights approach uh, right now instead of a focus on political chess playing. I think you alluded to that when you talked about the loss of life uh, for and the, the terror, you know, let aside the loss of life, people living in both Israel and, and the Gaza Strip with uh, constant attacks. So we need a human rights approach. Uh, that's what where I think we will go here in the short term to addressing uh, human rights focus on this. And then in the long term, uh, we have to uh, move away from. We really have to recognize uh, the Palestinian needs. Um, otherwise, you'll have um, Israel. Ha- it, there, there are two things that need to be ha- to happen. Number one, Israel needs its its safety and security ensured. And number two, the Palestinians need justice. Those two things can work together. They can coalesce. It's in the interests of Israel to have peaceful neighbors and Palestinians who are living in cooperation and harmony. That sounds like a pyrrhic, idealistic, impossible, quixotic dream, whatever adjective you want to describe. But there are precedents. There are plenty of world situations uh, where there has been a resolution. You mentioned the, the problem, unique problem of religion uh, being de-escalating. <laughs> uh, that is a, an ongoing problem. But um, we need to put try to put the genie back in the bottle uh, and there are long-term uh, solutions as well as long-term catastrophes. If, if Hamas wins uh, or if a new state is put in place and that state is destabilized, then you have uh, a nightmare scenario for Isra- Isla- Israeli security. So Israeli security has to be ensured, but also the Palestinian needs have to be ensured. There's plenty of specific nuts and bolts ways that that can happen. And there are plenty of voices in Israel and in this country, but around the world that are aware of of how we can improve the Oslo Accords and how we can get back on track with some of these really important, practical, specific economic uh, solutions for everyday lives, helping everyday questions.
0: In in your work, uh, you've looked at other areas around the world where there's such a need for uh, peace, reconciliation of some kind where people can live. Peacefully uh, looked at it from a religious perspective. Uh, you know, I know you've, you've alluded to some of this, and, and we've talked focused here on the kind of international level and what what could be assisted in this process. Uh, as you said earlier in the interview, some of the stories coming out are about you know people attacking bakeries and taxi cab drivers and things like that. From from your perspective, what does it take within a within communities within a society? uh, in order to, to, to affect these things, you know, in order for, you know, it's one thing for the, the governments and the politicians and the, uh, the allies and so forth to be a part of that process, but it also has to take root within those, those communities, uh, to be substantive and, and to last. And, uh, from your perspective, what do you, what do you see needs to, to happen at that level?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think we need, uh, I think the center uh, left and center right in Israel has abdicated its role of leadership, uh, and so we have an extreme left and extreme right who are controlling the narrative now in Israel, as far as Israel goes. And then the Palestinian Authority—they're uh, trying. Uh, They—they're—they're they're led by Mahmoud Abbas. He's eighty-five. He keeps delaying elections for obvious reasons uh, to to promote some level of stability, uh, but that's, a, there's a, a wealth of corruption that has to be addressed. And and those those are really important issues. And then Hamas is a, cannot be supported and encouraged uh, by um, other nations. Uh, and it has, obviously, you necessarily can't control rogue states like Iran, but uh, there are, Egypt can be a major player. Uh, Egypt obviously doesn't want anything to do with the Gaza Strip. Uh, they don't want to Uh, acquire or or bring that problem into their country. But they can be, uh, they can see their own needs and interests uh, to to ameliorate the situation. The blockade that's gone on since 2007 uh, puts the Gaza Strip completely in the control of economically of Israel. Uh, That's an untenable long-term situation. So I think we need to start with a few specifics that will kind of uh, unlock the uh, the larger uh, chains or lessen the chains. In other words, instead of thinking big, we need to think small and work at small solutions that will make bigger solutions more possible. Because as you said, this has gone on forever and will continue to go on as long as people are trying to swing for the fences, swing for a home run, when we need to just get men on base, you know, as it were. Uh, so there are uh, there is some reason there isn't necessarily reason for hope or optimism, but there are certainly opportunities for optimism to be nurtured and hope to be encouraged. Uh, but, um, the, the center has to become stronger uh, extremists uh, on, on both sides are, are too predominant and the extremists need to be checked by the international community, by voters in Israel. And, uh Perhaps also, um, if there are such eventually elections, some kind of representative authorities in in Palestine, or at least uh, influences from Jordan and Egypt and other um, neighboring nations to promote uh, more democracy in in the region. Well, Great question, tough answer. I think we've solved all the problems yes. of the Middle East in thirty minutes.
0: Yes, so we can. <laughs> yeah. We've tried to do that. I, I want to thank you, Dr. Van Gorder, for. Joining us today uh, is Dr. Chris Van Gorder from Baylor University, uh, Associate Professor of Religion, and if you missed any part of that interview, you can catch it on SoundCloud after the show airs, and again, we want to thank you for joining us and digging into what is a a very challenging, complex uh, issue that uh, we will hope for some progress to be made in in the near future with seeing some resolution and focusing on, on lives, the quality of life of people, but also uh, trying to find some uh, longstanding peace that can be achieved in that part of the world. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Eric. All the best.
0: We will take a quick commercial break, and then we will be back uh, with more on politics.
1: for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rissa. I'm Taylor. And we are the Music Business Business Babes. Babes. Music Business Babes is a music-based bi-weekly podcast where we answer tough industry-related questions, discuss updates in the industry, provide insight from our own personal experiences, and share fun stories along the way. You can catch the show by searching for Music
0: Business Babes or Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts welcome back to on politics i'm dr eric morrow we're glad you're joining us here today and we know that you can be with us each week sundays at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 fm uh, we thank again dr christopher van gorder of the baylor university and coming on today and discussing the challenges of the israeli-palestinian conflict what's caused this recent flare-up and what are some of the 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 issues uh, surrounding this to help us to understand uh, that uh, all of that uh, in in a more substantive way and if you missed any part of that as i said before the break uh, please catch us on soundcloud that's on politics with eric morrow so for this second part of the show i've got a couple of topics that i wanted to get to one that's more national state and the other that state Uh, but first of all talking about the uh, labor uh, pool and the labor challenges in the nation as we see many areas and across the nation moving out of the pandemic, uh, constraints and challenges and measures that have been taken to try to uh, address this public health crisis. And so there's been a lot of discussion about uh, labor shortage. You see signs of people looking, uh, asking for people to apply for jobs. Uh, Some blame that on the benefits that have been provided at the federal and state level to those that are unemployed. Uh, Others uh, blame it on the pandemic and concerns over health. Uh, uh, Others blame it on shifts in supply and demand in labor markets. Uh, Really, if you read the literature out there, it's it's all of the above. Uh, There are a lot of challenges that have impacted the labor market. And a couple of things that I wanted to point out, one is an article that I have posted on Uh, the Facebook page that was in the New York Times uh, this past week called The Myth of Labor Shortages. So I encourage you to go and read that full article. Uh, But I also want to talk about this in light of the employment or unemployment picture, we should say, uh, in the state of Texas, because Governor Abbott came out this past week and said that at the end of June or June 26, the extra $300 federal benefit for jobless Texans will be cut off. Um, and so that will not, no longer be available to a group right now that stands at about 344,000 that are receiving assistance, which is down uh, from 563,000 uh, that were receiving it uh, once the uh, uh, program was put in place. So all of these changes that are happening, uh, Governor Abbott's decision, of course, based on the fact they want to encourage people to get off unemployment, get back out into the labor market. Uh, Even if they're underemployed, even if they, uh, you know, take jobs, it's the focus here is on getting jobs that earn a living wage. The other uh, aspect of this, or another perspective on this, uh, came in this uh, uh, newsletter by David uh, Leonhardt in the New York Times, as I'd said before, entitled The Myth of Labor Shortages. And the focus that he takes is that the problem is not necessarily Uh, that there's uh, not enough labor. Uh, It's the issue here in terms of a a capitalist system uh, that is willing to adjust and adapt so that if there is a labor shortage, then the focus should be placed on paying higher wages to attract people into those jobs. And I think that that is part of the issue. I think that combined with people needing incentives Okay, you're no longer going to get this benefit. If you are employable, you should get out and look for work. But on the other side of it, it's also what those jobs are paying, uh, what, what wages that provides. And one of the things that he points out in this article, and we've given some attention to this in the show before, is that, that wages are historically low. When you look comparatively uh, over the last few decades, and what you see is that, that every income group, Uh, wages have grown very slowly. They've not uh, grown as quickly as they had in the uh, middle part of the 20th century. Um, And what we see as a share of gross domestic product is that worker compensation is lower than at any point in the second half of the 20th century. So our, our capitalistic system here has not kept up with wage increases uh, at the pace that the gross domestic product has grown, uh, at the pace that the economy has grown. And so what he is advocating is that maybe it's a time where uh, this, this focus on low wages, which has certainly helped corporations, it's certainly helped uh, the wealthy uh, in terms of the, of the resources that they've made, that it's time to shift. Some focus here into providing higher wages, and some have done that. Some uh, companies are responding to this by offering uh, higher wages. Bank of America announced last week that it would raise its minimum hourly wage to twenty-five dollars and insist that contractors pay at least fifteen. Other companies that have recently announced pay increases include Amazon, Chipotle, Costco, McDonald's, Walmart, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Sheets Convenience Stores. Uh, so. The, the, the attempt here is to kind of look at this in the bigger picture uh, in the sense of, okay, we, we don't necessarily have a labor shortage, labor is out there. The, the challenge that we've seen over time is that the ability for labor uh, to engage in pushing for higher pay and wages, thus you know, unions have declined, other mechanisms by which workers have, have advocated for better wages uh, what well, instead we've seen corporate consolidation uh, we've seen uh, technology increase to the point too that uh, it, it impacts uh, certain types of jobs so where we are is in in, a, in a, a rut basically in terms of the growth of wages and helping those uh, that uh, need jobs that need entry-level or hourly paying jobs to increase in their compensation and of, of course then affect their, quality of life and the resources that they have. So why are low wages normal? He, he goes into this a little bit more in the article. Uh, why continue complaints about a labor shortage? Uh, they're not totally misguided, he says. For one thing, some Americans appear to have temporarily dropped out of the labor force because of COVID, which is one of the reasons I mentioned at the beginning of this segment some high-skill industries may also be suffering from a true lack of qualified workers and some small businesses may not be able to absorb higher wages Uh, finally there is a rollicking partisan debate about whether expanded jobless benefits during the pandemic have caused workers to opt out so all of these things are contributing and of course the challenges of a rebounding economy as he says they're putting demands on Uh, needing more labor uh, to to produce more, to offer more in the service industry. Uh, All of this is coming together to create some significant challenges right now uh, in the labor market. So different approaches uh, in our system, in a free market system where you have uh, uh, businesses that are able to uh, work in that market and watch their costs and expenses and control labor in that way. Where you have a government that is there to provide assistance when uh, there are tremendous structural challenges or pressures on that economy that are affecting the well-being and the earning potential of uh, of, of people within that society. Uh, it creates a challenge here in what direction do we go and where do we find the balance which is always going to be a significant uh, challenge here but one of the things that he's pointing to that may correct this and we may see it happen in in certain segments i think we'll see that happen in a lot of areas where uh, labor shortages may be because of either the pandemic because of economic challenges because of uh uh, the, the the programs that have been put into place uh it it, we may see wages adjusted up just to attract people uh, to those jobs Uh, we're not seeing it the other way where there's there's groups of people demanding higher wages uh in order to to go back to work it's actually the opposite of that is that we have a economy that's on the rebound uh, and there's a need for uh, workers there's a need for people to be into jobs and thus wages may be a way of drawing them back into the workforce. In Texas, what we've seen is our unemployment rate, which is at, was at over 12%, almost 13% at one time, has now dropped to 6.9%. Uh, that's uh, getting closer to that low in May 2019, uh, before the pandemic, of 3.4%. Uh, that was a, a significant mark in terms of the unemployment rate in Texas and we see the economy rebounding and of course governor abbott acting in that way to uh to to remove these uh, benefits these federal insurance benefits uh, to try to encourage people back into the workforce as the texas economy and of course its population growth fuel fueling that uh, as well as many other elements uh, to get things back on track so that article the myth of labor shortages it's an interesting read it gets a little bit into the economics of all this, uh, that I think it's uh, important for you to look at and try to understand what's happening uh, as we move post pandemic, as we move uh, past some of the economic challenges that we've seen over the past year. Uh, in the final segment, I want to focus on an issue that is very persistent, at least in Texas and in the legislature, and that is one of abortion. Uh, this is a Uh, a topic that i do not think we've covered on the show before but in light of governor abbott signing into law one of the nation's strictest abortion measures uh, this past week i think it's important that we give it a little bit of attention i've always used this issue in my government classes as one of those uh, very challenging social issues uh, that is is very difficult to resolve because we have since roe v wade a significant amount of challenges in terms of legislatures, the federal government, uh, federal programs, uh, the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court, uh, all of this weighing in on different facets of uh, the issue of abortion and thus Texas always having been a state uh, that uh, continues to push for more restrictions. And of course, this is one of the most restrictive measures that bans an abortion procedure as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. Uh, this was uh, signed by Governor Abbott with the statement this past week, our creator endowed us with the right to life and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. Uh, he, in stating, he said the legislature worked together on a bipartisan basis to pass a bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. Uh, Now, this comes at a time when the Supreme Court is already taking up an abortion case in this session. Uh, It's a case on a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks. And, of course, this looks to uh, maybe set the tone of where we're going in the months and years ahead uh, related to uh, the abortion issue. And there may be a challenge here in looking at the Supreme Court, the possibility of overruling Roe v. Wade. And so this really kind of sets the stage for significant uh, uh, debate, uh, conflict within government, in society as well, uh, over the issue of abortion. And I think we're going to continue to see this uh, be a, a, a very strong social issue that is very challenging to resolve. And in fact, one direction that it could go uh, based on the, the what the Supreme Court does, is this could be pushed back to the states. This could be one of those issues in which uh, federal involvement in it, uh, which has been challenged uh, regularly over the past 50 years, that federal involvement uh, could be much, much more limited. And thus, this goes back to the states, and then it becomes much more of a focus uh, within states uh, themselves in terms of how legislatures and governors uh, and courts in those states uh, address this. That's the significance if a decision like Roe v. Wade is vacated, that uh, that, that where this would go. It, it kind of resets the process. It puts it back in to states. They can set their laws. Those laws can then be looked at within the, um, uh, be challenged then within the court system and can make their way up to the Supreme Court if this court is even open to uh, looking at states' decisions on this issue, uh, which I, I would think they may be in some cases, but uh, we could be looking at a very new era here in the, the way that we deal with abortion and abortion restrictions within this country. Uh, so I think that's where the significance is, knowing that the law that was signed by governor abbott this past week is one that will most likely uh, end up in the courts Uh, there is a new twist to this and this is what's going to be interesting as we follow this through uh, the court process and because similar heartbeat bills as they've been called have been passed by other states and held up in the courts but this is different because instead of having the government enforce the law what the bill does in texas is it turns the reins over to private citizens who are empowered to sue abortion providers or anyone who helps someone get an abortion after a fetal heartbeat has been detected. Uh, This person would not have to be connected to someone who had an abortion or to a provider to sue, uh, which is very interesting, it just kind of opens it up. If someone knows that uh, a person has had an abortion after six weeks, then that uh, allows that person to be able to sue, to, to sue anyone involved with providing that abortion. So it's not a versus the state, it's someone, uh, in, an individual, then with, which are open to this to, to, to pro-life groups and individuals within those groups uh, to be able to uh, sue in court. Uh, Josh Blackman was interviewed for the article in the Texas Tribune, who's a constitutional law professor at South Texas College of Law in Houston, and he said, quote, it's a very unique law, and it's very a very clever law. Planned Parenthood can't go to court and sue the attorney general like they usually would because the attorney general has no role in enfor- enforcing the statute. They have to basically sit and wait to be sued. So this is very interesting to see how this is going to work, how, um, how this is going to, uh, Uh, impact the legal process of challenging abortion. Uh, Part of it is that that opens these organizations or or opens these uh, like Planned Parenthood and others, doctors, clinics, so forth, uh, up to be sued uh, on a regular basis in in a way that would be very costly and expensive to them and thus uh, impact the way that they can uh, do what they do. Uh, So uh, again, on this issue here, I'm not looking to take sides pro-life or or pro-choice here, but we're navigating kind of the politics of this and how this would work in relation to government. And of course the politics part of it is that the attempts over and over again in the state of Texas to get more restrictions on abortion in place. And so this moves it to a different level. It's now not just the heartbeat bill that prohibits abortions after six weeks, but it is also putting in this mechanism that allows anyone uh, to sue those that provide abortions uh, thus making it more legally and financially challenging for anyone who provides that service uh, to to navigate Uh, so anyway it's very interesting to see where this is going to go and then what impact does this have as i said earlier in the segment on how abortion will be addressed at the national level because most likely this is going to move into the courts this, this will be challenged uh, in the courts. It, it's interesting to me to see uh, how someone who has no connection with it has as standing to do this. How will the courts recognize that? And then how will that play out if this moves to uh, the federal court system and then possibly uh, to the Supreme Court? Uh, so anyway, it, it's always a new twist on this and very interesting uh, to engage with it as it is such a very prominent social issue that has tremendous uh, engagement on both sides of it with people trying to exert pressure on our political system and on government uh, to get the outcome, the policy outcome uh, that they want. And it's one that is probably going to go in cycles. We're not going to see this easily resolved uh, in the short term. Uh, in fact, it's probably going to get more intense. Uh, and and we'll, we're very likely to see some significant challenges in how government actually uh, deals with this issue. So I wanted to bring that one to your attention because it, it will be one that will follow. Uh, it will be one that is a perennial issue in the Texas legislature, uh, as we see that there are often uh, bills related to this. And this of course is a new uh, direction, it has new facets to it uh, that will make this issue probably even more challenging and more prominent in as we go forward. It may seem that it's, it's hard to see how more prominent that it could be, but I think we're going to see a number of uh, actions in the courts and possibly this move to be looked at uh, on the federal level uh, within the months and years ahead. So stay with us here on politics. We will follow up with this issue as we do with many others. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us here today Uh, The interview with Dr. Van Gorder was uh, uh, very engaging and I follow up with that by just encouraging people to stay aware of these international issues of which the U.S. has had a prominent role, uh, but also a role that will continue in the future uh, if there is to be some lasting resolution. And of course, to know that it is our government, it's those that we elect to office, it's those that the, the resources that we contribute to government. Uh, that that help to make that engagement possible. And thus, these become very much national interest in terms of what's happening in other parts of the world. And it's important for us to be informed and to know uh, how some of these issues and their long history have influenced politics and government uh, as we have it uh, today. And of course, we work very hard here every week uh, to bring you interesting interviews, engaging interviews with people who are experts in various areas, but then also to cover national, uh, state, as well as local issues that are important to you and that give you information that help you to understand the political aspects of it, but also how this is working out within the policy arenas and among the decision makers that have been elected to public office. So we wanna thank you again for joining us. We're right here each Sunday at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM. Uh, we are available at 12 noon as well during that time on tarletonradio.com and then after the show you can download this and previous episodes uh, from soundcloud that's on politics with eric morrow or at that same name visit us on facebook uh, where you can look at recent articles that we've posted related to the topics for the show uh, as well as other issues So join us again next week at this time. We'll have plenty of other issues, policy and politics to look at, uh, to engage with, uh, and to offer you the best interviews and the best background and information that you can have in order to be engaged and to be informed. That's it for the show this week, and I look forward to being back with you again next Sunday at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM.